Let's humble our hearts before Almighty Yahweh. Heavenly Father, we come before you at this final service of the, the feast and the last great day. We, we are so humbled to have been able to come before you, to honor you, to give, us, give you praise and, and worship and receive the blessings in return. So we are grateful now that we say thank you and we pray that each of us here has gained by coming here and grown, for we know that your days are special in this world. Very few understand them, very few will keep them, but you have called out a special first fruits, those who have an understanding and who want to honor you. So we thank you, Almighty Yahweh, for the opportunity to come before you and see your face. We ask now that you'll bless this service and, and may we Consider all the things that you have for us and the meaning of this day. In Yahshua's name we pray. Hallelujah. May be seated. Yeah, this day is kind of bittersweet. You know, we we uh, hate to see it coming and all that uh, it means when we have to leave. But uh, But also what it means and how important it is in Yahweh's plan. It's been a great feast. We want to thank all the volunteers for all they did, and there's many, many of them. And, you know, we, we have a big workload here at YRM, and we have a small staff. So we rely on volunteers, volunteers that come here every Wednesday, volunteers that help in and around the Sabbath, before and after, and we, we really appreciate We couldn't do it without them, couldn't do it without you as well. You know, when you come to the feast, it's not just about you. When you come to the feast, you're also helping others. You're helping the others when you, when you come and fellowship with them, make it a special time for them as well. I don't think a lot of people realize that. When, uh, when there's voids, it hurts everyone. So we're thankful that you all came, and Yahweh bless you for doing so. A recent caller asked, how can I be saved? You know, Yahshua was asked the same thing. He told the young inquirer to keep the commandments. I also had a caller asking the same thing, and I, I uh, referred them to Acts 2, what Peter said, repent and be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit and live a life of obedience. An important key in the Holy, is the Holy Spirit in giving to the newly immersed, which we saw this feast. And many who are baptized and those who are being baptized sometimes are not given the laying on of hands. I I don't understand because that's, that's a very essential part of what Peter said. What Peter did, it uh, commanded there at Acts 2. If you don't lay out, have the Holy Spirit laid on, Uh, That's half the thing, you know. Romans 8, 9 says, without the Spirit, we are none of his. It is the Holy Spirit that resurrects us in Romans 8, 11. And 2 Corinthians 3, 6 adds that Yahweh gives uh, gives life through the Spirit. So how essential is the Spirit? You tell me. As we begin our look into the kingdom, which the last great day depicts, we we hear the words of Yahshua, who plainly said in John 3, 13, And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, 
even the Son of Man which is in heaven. So let's forget about all those loved ones smiling down at us who have passed on. Heaven, of course, is the universal desire of churchianity, even of Islam, as we found out this week. Interesting that Satan's rebellion was all about going to heaven. He tried to usurp Yahweh's power by going up, ascending up into a realm he was not allowed to be in. He was thrown down. He tried to ascend up. So that's the first red flag of this doctrine. Now, if anyone would be worthy of praise, you'd think David would, would have done it. You know, he would have, he'd be up there right now. And despite all of his accolades, Peter said, For David is not ascended into the heavens. Acts 2.29 and 34. This was many days after David's death. Many days. Many centuries after David's death. He still wasn't there. The truth is, at death we all go to the grave to await the resurrection. The return of Yahshua the Messiah. Ecclesiastes 12.7. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto Yahweh who gave it. With no conscious awareness at all of what's happening, the dead are simply asleep, waiting for Yahshua's return. Psalm 115.17 tells us, The dead praise not Yah, neither any that go down into silence. So that's pretty much uh, cut and dried there. I think I don't know how we continue on a doctrine saying that, uh, uh, well, you go right to heaven. That means you've already been judged, for one thing. Where does the judgment fit in, I ask? Well, they come back down, I guess, and I don't, I don't know, get judged then, but it doesn't make any sense. If we don't go to heaven, where, the, uh, where is the glorious kingdom, I guess you could ask? You know, Yasha answered that. He says he's going to bring the kingdom to us. He prayed in his model prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer has been quoted untold billions of times. Has to be billions of times, his model prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's pretty simple. His will is going to be done right here on earth. Just as it is in heaven. His kingdom is coming to the earth. In his parable of Luke 19 about, the, about being profitable believers, Yahshua explains in verse 11, And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, because they thought that the kingdom of Yahweh should immediately appear. This was a big disappointment of the, of the apostles who waited and wanted Yahshua to start a kingdom, get rid of this hated Roman Empire. And he had to explain it to him. He said, therefore, he told him a parable. A certain nobleman, meaning himself, went into a far country, kingdom of heaven, to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. In other words, they were giving gifts giving gifts of money, expecting to multiply that. You know, he gives us a gift of the Spirit. He expects us to do something with it. Then came the first saying, Master, your pound has gained 10 pounds. And he said, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little. Have authority over 10 cities. So we got 
one, increasing to ten, he gets ten cities. Ten by ten. And the second came and said, Master, your pound has gained five pounds. And he said, Likewise to him, be thou also over five cities, five by five. Now this parable reflects reality. This reflects what's going to happen in the kingdom. He says he's going to give you rulership over ten cities. He might say to you, go over to that city there and uh, take control. You can be the mayor or whatever. Uh, and, and go ahead and straighten out the problems and rule them. And so you go. It's reality. In Matthew six twenty-seven, Yahshua said, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father and his angels. Then he shall reward every man according to his works. There's that dreaded five-letter word that most Bible believers run from because that's what they've been taught. Works. Works means something we must do. It means something we, we, uh, we gain by, something that changes our ways and our lifestyle, and we live in them. That's not too much to expect, is it, if you're going to be in the kingdom? People want to slip right into paradise effortlessly. You know, a reward based on our works will be given here on earth. Joshua inspired John to write in Revelation 5.10, And you have made us unto our Elohim kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. should be, actually be kingdom of priests is how that should read. A kingdom of priests. We're being in, in training now to be part of a kingdom of people who are going to go out and rule the earth. Cities, nations, who knows. Ezekiel 37.24 gives more insight on this millennial kingdom. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Well, if we're going to be doing it in the kingdom, what's wrong now? I mean, you've got to be able to, you have to have them under your belt if you're going to teach them to somebody else and observe them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. David's going to be the prince under Yahshua the Messiah in the millennium. He's going to be right under Yahshua, because Yahweh said, or Yahshua said, he's a man after my own heart. Yahweh looks at the heart. I always think, you know, John the Baptist was called the greatest. I would think he would have a good role to play sometime soon as well. And he probably will. He said there's none greater than John the Baptist. Of course, John the Baptist was paving the way for Yahshua to come. And he, he declared as he was out there baptizing, you know, prepare the way. Psalm 115.16, the heavens, even the heavens are Yahweh's, but the earth has he given to the children of men. How could they have missed that one? The heavens belong to Yahweh. The earth is man's. Why do people think that the heavens are theirs? And dozens of other passages that say we're not rewarded heaven. Not even New Jerusalem, which follows the events of the second resurrection we're going to get into, will be located in heaven when Yahshua himself abides here. Yahweh himself in the second resurrection abides here. Both of them will be here on earth, going to abide with men. Revelation 21.3, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of Elohim is with men. Analogy, metaphor complete. The tabernacle, which is what we're observing now. People think, what's this tabernacle? Well, it's going to be 
your creator living here on earth. That's what this tabernacle is. It means to dwell, a certain dwelling. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and Yahweh himself shall be with them and be their Elohim. Tabernacle in the Greek means a tent for habitation. Here's the essence of tabernacles, Feast of Tabernacles in last great day. Yahweh one day will tabernacle with his obedient. There is a key to this observance today. The capital of Yahweh's kingdom will be on earth at Jerusalem, and Yahweh will make his his throne here on earth. Imagine his throne over the entire universe right here. Right here. I I don't know if we realize the impact of what we're doing here and how it's going to reflect on the future forever. Here on earth, he's going to make his, his throne. The governmental center of the universe. So if he and Yasha will be ruling here at Jerusalem, why on earth would we be somewhere off in heaven? What else can we discover about the kingdom? Well, how will everybody be communicating in the kingdom? You know, I'm sure that Yahweh and Yahshua and the angels can communicate by mind. I'm sure, I'm sure of it. And I also believe that Yahshua can move by thinking. He doesn't have to physically go somewhere. He's outside of time and space. He just has to think it and he's there. Remember when he walked through walls, the apostles were all gathered, and he all of a sudden he appears in the midst of them. He just thinks it and he's there. But there's going to be also people living Flesh and blood people that make it through the uh, tribulation are going to be living here during the millennium. So how are they going to be talking to one each other? Each other? Uh, what language is going to be used? Re- remember the first language ever spoken by man got changed into numerous languages at Babel because of man's rebellion. Now ask yourself, why in the world would Yahweh continue his judgment against Man by keeping in his holy kingdom all those, all those impure languages that developed because of their sin. One of the most eye-opening of passages is Zephaniah 3.9 when it comes to prophecy. It speaks of a future time when this world will go back to the way it was before the Tower of Babel, before man rebelled, when everyone on earth will speak the same language. It says... For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of Yahweh. Two clues right there. Pure language, name of Yahweh, to serve him with one consent. Now, the King James doesn't bring out the essence of the Hebrew. Turn in Hebrew is 2015. Hafak means to turn back, return, give back. That's the principal meaning of it. Restore speech of a pure kind, BDB says. The question has been raised thousands of times by thousands of Bible students who have read Zephaniah 3.9 and wondered just what is that pure language that's going to be returned to in the coming kingdom. I think you probably are already ahead of me. We find more details in Isaiah 19.18. In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan. Oh, it must be Arabic. No, not Arabic. And swear to Yahweh of hosts, one shall be called the city of destruction. Righteousness, the companion Bible says, the city of righteousness. They they translated that because they didn't want it interfering, competing with Jerusalem. So they called it, the translator called it the city of destruction, but that's not really what, what it should have said. Now, this was written in the 8th century 
before the common era, 800 years before the common era, like around David's time. And the language in Canaan at that time was none other than Hebrew because Israel, Israelites were now living in that land and speaking Hebrew, having conquered that land. In fact, the Living Bible, the HarperCollins Study Bible, and others, including the Companion, say the same thing. Say it's Hebrew was then the language of Canaan. So it's going to go back to that language of Canaan. All the earth will be speaking that language. Jerusalem Bible says, In that day, in the land of Egypt, there will be five towns speaking the language of Canaan and swearing oaths in the name of Yahweh Sabuad. So they're going to be speaking in the name of Yahweh. Would they be making oaths to Yahweh, to his specific name, if they were speaking Greek, Russian, or, or Chinese? Would they... Swearing oaths in Yahweh's name is not a problem when it's done in Hebrew because it comes naturally. His name was given in that language. His name was given in the Hebrew. You wouldn't say G-O-D or L-O-R-D when you're speaking Hebrew. You'd be speaking Yahweh's name. According to Acts 3.21, if all things will be restored, which speaks volumes about the importance of the Old Testament and its covenant, then would not that include the language spoken at that time in the Old Testament? I would think so. Everything's going to be restored like it was. Before sin caused the creation of alternative languages that Yahweh plagued man's with, so that they would stop building that tower. So which language was pure, if not the original? Which language was undefiled? Hebrew, you know, is the only language to fit that definition because it originated with Yahweh himself and was undefiled at Babel. How do we know that? Well, people like Shem and, and, and Adams, Adams, Abraham's descendants would not be at Babel rebelling against Yahweh. They would be away and their language would not be affected. So they would be speaking that pure language of Hebrew. Zechariah 8.20, all nations will come to Jerusalem and his name will be one. Not a different name in a different language because the universal language is going to be Hebrew. So they all speak Yahshua's name as given in the Hebrew. Zechariah 14.9, and Yahweh shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Yahweh in his name, one. Now, whenever celestial beings spoke to mankind, have you ever read that they spoke in Greek? Ever read they spoke Latin? What, what language did they speak to mankind to? It was always to those who understood Hebrew, and it was in the Hebrew tongue. Hebrew is the only ancient language brought back from almost certain obscurity to become the, nation, uh, the, the language of a, a nation today, Hebrew in Israel, to become the official language of a modern nation. When Yahshua returns, he will be coming to the Mount of Olives, to a nation that's already speaking Hebrew, not to Athens, not to Rome, not to Washington or any other capital of the world. Okay, I want to go now to Revelation 20 because I want to speak basically, uh, go a little farther now about what the kingdom will be like. Revelation 20, 1 to 5, Satan's uh, imprisonment and the, the heading in the RSB. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on that dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. 
and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him. It actually means he put a seal over him, like, you know, a prison, put a seal over him, and uh, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. So this is uh, Satan being chained during the millennium. And I saw thrones, verse 4, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Yahshua and for the word of Yahweh, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Messiah a thousand years. So there we have the, the millennium, a thousand year rule. Yahshua is going to come. He's going to resurrect his, his priesthood. You know, uh, They go first as he returns, Matthew 24. You can read about the Olivet Prophecy. He's going to return and gather his elect from the four corners of the earth, and so shall they ever be with him. Where's he going to go? doesn't go back to heaven. He goes to Jerusalem. He goes to the uh, Mount Zion. And anyway, um, so blessed in he, verse 6, has part in the first resurrection. It says, on such the second death has no power. Now, we're, we're told that all must be judged. Everyone must be judged. There's no way these people are judged if they're then resurrected into the millennial kingdom. They've already been judged, you see, and that's what the, the uh, called out ones, the first fruits, now. You're being judged now. That's why things are so tough, because you're being judged now, and Yahweh's watching to see how you're going to react, because once you make that, he says there's no death. You've made it. There's no death. You can't go back down and uh, be judged again and thrown into the lake of fire. It's not going to happen. So this judgment that we, we, uh, we see here is the first resurrection. And they will be priests of Elohim and Messiah and be with him a thousand years. We don't know what happens after that thousand years. Revelation doesn't say. And no other book that I know of says so uh, or even indicates. But it does. there is some hints in the Bible uh, of this kingdom, there'll be no end. So who knows? It could expand out into foreverness. And we can, might have a role there, whatever. But anyway, if we're in that, that uh, first resurrection. Okay, now, uh, they're going to rule as priests in the first resurrection. He's going to change them from mortal to immortal or if they have died as saints, as worthy of his, of his resurrection, then they'll be changed into spirit beings as well. Everybody will be a spirit being changed uh, to rule with him. The others, there's going to be some living through the resurrection, or I'm sorry, living through the uh, uh, millennium, uh, tribulation, I'll get it yet. Tribulation, there's going to be some living through the tribulation. And uh, some estimates are, are like, we got six, six or seven billion people. I once read an estimate. Some guy tried to figure it out, putting all the passages together. He came up with 10 million people. That's it. 10 million people left on earth after all the destruction and all the calamity. I don't know if it's right or not, but there can't be an awful lot of people. You know, a third here and a third there and a third here. gets carves it down pretty, pretty thin. Anyway, so there's going to be those people still on earth who have not accepted Yahshua, don't know about him maybe, uh, whatever, 
uh, they didn't make the first resurrection, and then they're going to be judged as well, but they've got to be able to know what, what to do, what they're going to be judged for. So that's where his saints will come in. Uh, talk about that in a minute. So it says the second death will have no power over those in the first resurrection. Just as Israel escaped the death angel of Egypt when they were faithful, they, they didn't die. They had to f- face a few difficulties as the Egyptians did. But they escaped the death, same deal. We would, if we're worthy, would escape that death too if, uh, if we remain faithful and Yahweh resurrects us through Yahshua. I don't know, do you realize the significance of this promise? Yahweh is guaranteeing everlasting life to all who will dedicate their lives to him right now. Those in the first resurrection will be permanently with him. They'll be with the Messiah for eternity. Eternity is a long time. The millennial kingdom is a time of restoration. Along with the Messiah, the saints will be teaching Yahweh's ways to these people here on earth. And then who knows after that. And it says in Isaiah 30, 20, this is one of my favorites. And though Yahweh give you bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not your teachers be removed into a corner anymore. But your eyes shall see your teachers. Who is he talking about? He's talking to these physical human beings on earth who are going to maybe start going wayward. And he's going to have a booming voice come out and say, hold it. Uh-uh, go this way, you're not, nope, don't do that. And then they'll see their teachers as well, which if you're a spirit being, you can make yourself visible, just like the angels did when they approached Abraham and Lot. So uh, these teachers who are, will rise in the first resurrection, they can't be anybody else. Uh, how can we be teachers if we don't know the material? You know, A teacher has to know his stuff. So we have to be able to, understand it, to do it, and not be a hypocrite. And they'll say to you, well, you didn't do it when you were alive here on earth. Why do I have to do it? You know. So anyway, our teacher today is Yahshua, and he did it. He did everything, and so that's what we have to, the pattern we have to follow. You know, sometimes people may wonder, why doesn't he answer my prayer? Why doesn't he take this burden off of me? Why do I have to go through this? Think about it. The teacher is always silent during the test. What are those who died having never the opportunity to learn and live the truth of their heavenly father? Are they forever doomed? Revelation 20 verse 7, we'll continue on. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go forth to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to the battle. I think Gog and Magog just refers to masses of people. Uh, the number of whom is of the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And the fire came down from Yahweh out of heaven and devoured them. So they're going to wipe out Yahweh's people until Yahweh devours them with supernatural power. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet should say were and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So here we have what's going to happen to the people and to Satan who rebel against Yahweh. Yahweh's going to remove them. And then it says in, uh, okay, now we enter the, uh, the second 
resurrection. Okay, and the devil that deceived them, all right. Then it says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before Elohim, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the book, books, plural, according to their works. So John was inspired to write a description of the second resurrection, beginning with the great white throne. They call it great white throne. It doesn't really call itself that, but there is a great white throne. Judgment, I should say, it does say great white throne. Anyway, uh, it reads that these people then are going to be raised. They were not. Okay, here, how, how do we know who these are? They were not raised in the first resurrection. They didn't meet the standard. They were unworthy. Either they were ignorant while they were on earth. Maybe they were really bad on this earth. Maybe, you know, whatever it could be. They were not in the first resurrection. They are not first fruits. And Yahweh's going to have a judgment there. They're going to be judged. It says both, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before him. The books were open. What books? The Bible is... 39 books in the Old Testament, 29, 27 books in the New, 66 books. It has to be none other than the Bible itself. They're going to be judged by the same standard that we're judged, which is the Bible. They're going to have to see how their lives measure up with the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, all of a sudden they're all raised. Yahweh's sitting there, or Yahshua's sitting there with a, you know, with a hammer and, you know, Trap door down, stairs going up, as some people think. It's, it's not that kind of judgment. They're going to be given the information and allowed to make their own decision just like we have right now. Everyone, he says, is going to receive judgment. And that's only fair that each one has the information they need then to do or not do. So this, we, didn't, we don't know how long this is going to be. It could be quite a while. But there they are, all these people there, standing there. And they were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. Well, he says that the, you know, if you're ignorant, you have no sin. So obviously they have to be aware of what they're doing so they can be judged. Otherwise, they'd, they'd pass the test, no flying colors. So the great white throne judgment is for the rest of mankind who were unworthy in the first resurrection. Alive and, and dead, be brought to life. That's why in uh, Ezekiel 37 is the Valley of Dry Bones story. You remember that? The bones that come together and sinews, and these people are made alive again. That's what this is talking about. Becoming alive again for the second, in the second resurrection. This message of Yahweh's kingdom coming to earth is non-existent in nearly every modern teaching that I've heard. You don't hear anything about this. They wipe it all out, chapters 20, 21, 22, and we all go to heaven. They don't even talk about it. Most think we leave this world, go to heaven, but because there's a complete lack of information on a heavenly reward, they don't know what they're supposed to do there. What do you do up there in heaven? Uh, I don't know. We do like Carol does, play harps or whatever. And... Uh, 
lounge around on clouds, make, you know, drinking sarsaparilla. I don't know. But, but they don't know because they've never told. And that's because scriptures don't teach that we go to heaven. So naturally, it doesn't tell us what heaven is for. It says, except that it's Yahweh's. We don't have to worry about it. We aren't going there. So let Yahweh worry about heaven. Yahshua's going to bring it to earth, his kingdom. Many believe that we are under grace alone, that grace overrules works, and therefore they have no need of works. Okay? That's not the message of Scripture. Yahweh states that we will be judged according to our works. I'll give you a few passages, and I don't know how they can completely miss these too. Revelation 2.23, I'm not going to read them, I'll just tick them off. 20 verse 12 and 13, Jeremiah 17.10, Proverbs 24.12, 1 Peter 1.17, and Romans 2.6. All says we're going to be judged by what we do on earth, our works. Peter said, 1 Peter 1.17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth. That's a modern translation, but it's pretty, says, you know, the same meaning. Conduct yourselves in fear the time you live here on earth because you're being judged. So where does that leave the grace by faith alone doctrine? Well, that goes nowhere. And that doctrine can easily lead to judgment. For there were certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Wicked men turning the grace of our Elohim into lasciviousness and denying the only sovereign Yahweh and our master Yahshua the Messiah. They say, oh, we've got grace. We can do whatever we want. We can do bad things. Doesn't matter. We've got grace. And Yahweh says they are condemned for that. They turned it into condemnation. Those who teach that the commandments are no longer obligatory are guilty of turning Yahweh's grace into lawlessness. What about those who were not law observant because of ignorance? Will they be given an opportunity for salvation? We kind of covered that. Those who lived a moral life based on what they understood will certainly, I'm sure, get a modicum of grace from Yahweh in a judgment. Certainly he looks at the heart. But they also have to have the Holy Spirit. He gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him, Acts 5.32. So if they don't have the Holy Spirit, they can't go anywhere. They won't be drawn to Yahshua, and they'll be just sitting here. So they have to go through a process as we have. Yahshua alludes to this in John 9.41 when he said, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now, you say, we see, we understand the truth. Therefore, You've got sin that needs to be repented of because you understand and you, you rebel against me anyway and do those things that I don't want you to do. So he provides a second example in Matthew eleven twenty three, And thou Capernaum, Capernaum is how they pronounce it over in Israel, which art exalted unto heaven shall be brought down to the grave. For if the mighty works which have been done in you, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Why? Because they were basically uninformed. They didn't, they didn't understand. They didn't get it. So it, it's more tolerable for them because they're not held to such a higher standard of account because they didn't know. 
While Yahweh's law is always present, his condemnation is not. And actions done in ignorance are dealt with differently than those done knowingly. But we also find this principle in Acts 17.30. And the times of this ignorance Yahweh winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Notice that once we know the truth, we have to repent and follow that truth. Willful ignorance is unacceptable to Yahweh and our Savior. A lot of people run from the truth because they know something inside, and I think it happens for most people, they know it's right, but they don't want to make any changes. They're, they like their life. They like what they're doing now. They're happy right now and what, you know, the little information they've been given. They're happy. I'm just not going to go any farther, and, uh, you know, uh, I'm not going to do it. So they understand the truth and what they must do, but they refuse. Well, deliberate refusal to do what is commanded is a serious thing. There it comes down to drawing the line, how much did they know and how much did they not know? And the only way that we can determine that is to read a heart, and only Yahweh can read a heart. So, I mean, that's not for us to worry about anyway. And I'm glad he's judging and not not man, because man can be very, very uh, vicious sometimes. So following the great white throne, the judgment, we call it, of the second resurrection, John provides an image that could be described only as heavenly paradise on earth. He states in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Now, sea in scripture symbolizes nations. It works maybe both ways. Maybe there's no water. Uh, I don't know. But It also could mean there's no more nations because there's only one nation now under Yahweh. When the Messiah rises from the sea, it likely means a consortium of nations. Like in the Middle East, as we we tend to believe. So, again, uh, there was no more sea. And we can look further. New heaven and new earth. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from Elohim out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of Elohim is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. We've already covered that, but I'm going to read it in context. And Elohim shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death or sorrow or crying neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Obviously, all of these have to do with man and his sin. That's got to be where it's all coming from, because sin is going to be a thing of the past. No more death, sickness, no more crying, no more sorrow, neither shall be any more pain. For those found worthy of Yahweh's calling, this is a prize. Think about it. It sounds like Eden, doesn't it? He's going to return to the days of Eden, how it was meant to be. Before Satan got in there and before man tried to usurp Yahweh's power as well, it's going to be back to where paradise Yahweh wanted in the beginning. Imagine 6,000 years of waiting for getting back to the way it should be. Yahweh says you're going to learn some lessons. You're going to learn, you know, you, you rebel against me. You try to usurp my throne. You try to usurp my my commands by doing it your own way, I'll give you 6,000 years to figure it out. So we have to go through death. We have to go through sickness. We have to go through 
sorrow and crying and all of this, and then he's going to say, see, you wouldn't learn any other way. You know, a lot of people are that way. They have to go through it themselves. They, they won't listen to reason. They won't listen to logic. They just, uh, or experience, they want to do it themselves. So he says, okay, finally we're going to get back to the way it was in the beginning. For those worthy of Yahweh's calling, it's a prize. After the millennium and the second death, for the incorrigible, Yahweh, our Father, will bring his holy city right here, New Jerusalem to earth. All the pain and suffering that comes with sin is going to be eliminated. No more wars, no more mass murders. Imagine a paradise. And Yahweh's going to make his abode, his tabernacle, with his people. That's been his desire all along. Remember how he interacted with Adam and Eve? Right there, talking to him. Well, actually, Yahshua, I guess. But he wants to interact closely with us. We've driven him away by our sin. So he says, okay, and that's why, you know, you don't see him. You don't, he, he gives us his word. That's all we need. We can go to that and understand how we, he thinks and how he wants us to be. We can just go to his word. But he says, I'm going to stand off because you, you have, you know, really um, rejected me. So that's why we have people saying, well, why, doesn't, why didn't he intervene? Why did he let that baby die? We've got to go all the way back to man's sin. It's man who has caused that. But Yahweh does act in the life of believers. We know that. We've seen it. We've seen answered prayer over and over. Um, he will. If you draw close to him, he'll draw close to you. So his abode, abode will be with men. He'll be their mighty one. They'll be his people. Everything's going to be harmonious. It's going to be the way it should have been at the beginning. John further describes this awe-inspiring city, Revelation 21, uh, 10. carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from Elohim. Imagine seeing that coming down, this holy city, mind-boggling, much something we've never even, even could consider. We can't even imagine coming down. And her light was like unto a stone, most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Had a wall, great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And the names written on thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Imagine that. His city is going to have the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. That's just almost unbelievable to me that Yahweh chose a small people and raised them into glory like this to be permanently emblazoned on his city. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel. I bet Jacob never would even consider. How could he even think about such things? His sons, their names on this city. I mean, just unbelievable. On the east side, three gates. The north side, three gates. South side, three gates. On the west side, three gates. So to get into the holy city, God's got to go through one of the tribes of Israel. There again, we don't replace Israel. We don't replace Israel, you know, the uh, replacement theory and all of that. The church replace. uh-uh. It's, it's, we join with Israel. And notice verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And in them... Here's another mind blower. The names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The foundation 
stones or whatever, however it's made. It's got the apostles' names on it. You're Peter, James, John. I bet you had no idea that your name is going to be eternally put in Yahweh's foundation city. See how, I just think how, how, how great his plan is. And we don't even realize it. And they didn't probably even realize it. And he, because they thought his kingdom was coming right now. They, didn't, they had no clue, the, the disciples. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lies four square. And the length is as large as the breadth and measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length, the breadth, and the height of it are equal. It's a cube. Guess what was a cube in the tabernacle? The Holy of Holies. It was as wide as it was long as it was high, a perfect cube. Here, that's where Yahweh came to dwell with Israel. Remember, he came to the the mercy seat and all the smoke and the, the poor priest in there. The high priest couldn't even see because it got so full of smoke because Yahweh was there. His power was there. So here we have another depiction of that translated into something unbelievably grand. I mean, it's Yahweh always starts with small stuff and makes them great, even his name. Weakest letters of the Hebrew alphabet, the most powerful name in the universe. So here we have the names of the 12 apostles here also. And he that talked with me had a golden reed and measured the city. So we got a cube, a perfect cube. Uh, you figure it out if you look it up. It's uh, these, well... I think I'll, uh, well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a 1,400 miles cubed. 1,400 miles cubed coming to the earth. So it's going to stick up, like way up. Some people think it hovers over the earth. I think it says he goes to Mount of Olives, it's going to stick up there on the Mount of Olives. Of course, it's going to cover half the earth, <laughs> or a quarter of it anyway. But uh, it's going to be amazing. Uh, and then it says... Uh, the building of the wall of it was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. No potholes on this road. And the foundations of the wall of the city are garnished with all manner of precious stones. I haven't been able to check this out. I just ran out of time. But I was going to check the, the precious stones here in uh, the wall of the city if they matched the breastplate of the high priest, because the names have changed. Uh, you know, Chalcedony wasn't called that in the Old Testament. But uh, chrysolite, that wasn't the same. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if you can make the translation. Anyway, uh, I'd like to see that, because I think there, again, is another connection that we, we, we have to realize. Old is new, coming back to, you know, the same plan. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold as it was transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein. For Yahweh El Shaddai and the Lamb are the temple of it. No temple. They're going to be right there with Yahweh, worshiping face to face. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine. For the glory of Elohim did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Doesn't say you don't have to, you won't have a sun and a moon. You're not going to need it because there's not going to be any night. With Yahweh and Yasha, the whole thing is going to light up. This city is really breathtaking. Imagine walls of jasper and streets of gold. Rulership in this kingdom on earth awaits those who devote their lives now to Him. You know, it's, it's just amazing. 
to be with the Father, to be with the Son, Yahshua the Messiah, Revelation 2.26. Growing up, this was a passage I always like to refer to. And I was talking to somebody who thinks, uh, thinks you're going to heaven. And he that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Power over the nations. You're going to rule with him. So the Holy of Holies was a perfect cube. The city, New Jerusalem, is going to be a perfect cube. 1 Kings 6, 19 to 20 is where the Ark of the Covenant rested and where the high priest of Israel would atone for the sins of Israel once every year. Yahshua is going to be our high priest out of the order of Melchizedek. So his role will change from the Savior of Yahweh to Melchizedek, uh, the uh, under the order of Melchizedek. The city has no temple. There's going to be no nighttime. And you can only enter into uh, this city if you're in the book of life. Book of life. That's also another aspect of this second judgment, this second uh, uh, 2127, there shall no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Brother Michael talked about the book of life. Book of life. From the foundation of the world, I've often wondered, is this book of life the names of those who are called out? Many are called, few are chosen. They haven't got salvation yet because they haven't, you know, Yahweh calls them, says, okay, I'm going to present to you my, my plan of salvation, the truth. What are you going to do with it? If they're successful, then their names will be permanently in that book. They're not blotted out. Uh, I know a man that said everybody has their name in the book of life. I don't believe that. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. But uh, anyway, we have, uh, we have the book of life. If your name's in there. He, you, you're, you've got it. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of Elohim and of the Lamb. And this is why I, I, I tend to think that sea is talking about is uh, more metaphys- meta- um, a metaphor of the nations. Because we also have water here, the river of water, clear as crystal, coming out of the throne of Elohim and the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life? Now, that should be plural. That's a plural word. There were the trees of life, because you've got them in the midst, you've got them on either side. How can you have one tree? There are trees lining it, which bear the twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of Elohim and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. So we have imageries of the Garden of Eden back again. you got the trees. He said, in the millennium, everybody's going to send under their own vine and their own fig tree. So here we have a pure river of water, clear as crystal, coming out of Yahweh's throne and the Lamb. Trees of life also lining this river. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of Elohim and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. 
Never be ashamed of Yahweh's name. It's the one thing that's going to identify you in the coming kingdom. His name shall be on your forehead. That could also mean in your, in your forehead too, in, the, in your thoughts and minds. And there shall be no night there. They need no candle, nor light of the sun, for Yahweh Elohim gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. This, this whole city, this whole description is all about twelves, have you noticed? Twelve. Governmental perfection. You got twelve gates in this city. You got twelve angels at the gates, each one at a gate. The gates display the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. You got twelve apostles on the foundation of this city. You have walls, and I figured this out. You know how thick those walls are? It's 144 cubits thick. That's 12 by 12 or 216 feet thick. That's like maybe from here to the road, I don't know, 200 feet, maybe a little less, but that's the thickness of the walls of this thing. The 12 foundations of precious stones and the 12 tribes inscribed on the gates. Well, that conjures up what? Israel and the high priest and the garment. And, you know, the, uh, the 12 tribes are worshiping Yahweh at the time. The breastplate with precious stones for each of the 12 tribes. It just goes on and on. I think outside of seven as a, you know, a sacred number of, of sorts, 12 ranks right up there. 12 ranks up there. John states that the nations walk by the light of the city. But he also notes that the kings of the nations will bring their splendor into the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, 24. The kings of the nations, they're going to give up. Basically, uh, Yahweh's going to rule over all those nations. But there's going to be rulership of nations. Could that again be part of the kingdom of priests? Could be, I, I don't know. You know, our lives are very transitory, and the life to come is eternal, everlasting, full of happiness, blessings beyond measure. We can't even fathom. We're going to look back on this life and say, man, this is like what Johnny Carson, Johnny Carson, Johnny Cash's old song, Kingdom of Dirt. You know, that's about how we're going to look at this life, Kingdom of Dirt. We see that, that holy city, New Jerusalem. Uh, unbelievable. And we're going to say, you know, it was all well worth it. It was well worth it when I took the sacrifice, came out to the Feast of Tabernacles, took the sacrifice, kept his other feasts, his Sabbath day, week in, week out, not wavering. I know there was temptations not to, but I had to stay strong. I had to. There will be no end to Yahweh's kingdom, regardless of our current trials in this world. We have hope for a wonderful promise ahead. We're going to repair what got botched up in Eden and bring, Yahshua says, into our time, into the coming kingdom. And I imagine, you know, Yahweh is such a good father. You know how it says a father will give good things to his children? You can imagine what he's got in store for those who love him. Just the treasures and, well, the blessings just unimaginable. Our fate is determined by the lives we live now. Paul admonished the assembly at Philippi, work out your own salvation 
with fear and trembling. There's that dreaded word, work again. It's all over the Bible. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why do you get up and go to Missouri and keep a feast in tents and trailers? And Why do you do that? I know when our first feast, uh, my wife was, her, her family was not, not there yet, especially her dad, and he just thought, why are you doing that? I mean, we've got a house right here. Stay right here, you know. Well, it doesn't work that way. We're here just to do that. <laughs> he finally caught on, and I'm sure glad he did, but... Uh, took him a while. He didn't quite see it. When you get into it, you know, and, uh, you know, I was reading about Muslims and how they, you know, five times a day they bow to Mecca and they all stop and they pray and they all go down together, at least all the men. I've never seen women doing it, but they all bow down, you know, and, and to pray. And uh, as Philip was saying, they have this little, eventually they wear a little hard spot on their forehead for hitting the ground all the time. But anyway, they do that for com- for for camaraderie and for uh, unity. They all the things together develops a spirit of unity in their faith. Yahweh is doing that long before Mohammed came along. He had his people come out and dwell together in unity. And that builds a solidity. And you feel attached to the brethren, which you're supposed to do, that you come out and actually physically do it. You may not think it's making an impact. Wait to get home. You'll think how empty this world is and how it's just, there's nothing here. It's all fluff. I remember getting off the plane in Chicago, my first trip to the feast. We flew, my sister and I flew, and uh, I wanted to hug everybody. I got off the plane and everybody's coming, I want to, I'm not, oh, I'm not in Kansas anymore, you know. Uh, you'll learn pretty quick what the world is like, and I couldn't do it. But you just have that, it's still in you, that spirit, that Holy Spirit working. And that's, uh, that's part of it. You know, it really, it really brings it home. But death is only temporary. It's just a sleep. We, we, we lose awareness, consciousness. We die one moment. The next minute we're staring Yahshua in the face and had no clue about the time lapse. Could be hundreds, could be even thousands of years. We have no clue because it's just a sleep. If we strive to live in obedience to Yahweh according to his word, we'll have the right to everlasting life. It's a promise. Why give that up for this world, anything in this world, anything, any temptation, any, anything this world has, you know, that uh, it, it thinks is, uh, you know, good thing to do, and it's an uh, it's empire of dirt. It just doesn't, there's nothing to compare it. Uh, are the ladies in the... You're there, okay. I had a request. When we read the ironic benediction, they wanted to be there. They're back working in the kitchen. Anyway, uh, for those who know and understand and yet through their own rebellion refuse to obey, they're going to find themselves facing judgment. And that's if they know and understand. And that, that's again, is the key. That's where you draw the line. Do they really know or do they think they kind of understand or are they really convinced and I believe that the unpardonable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Yahshua says, you go ahead and you can, you can sin against me. I don't care. You know, I can forgive. Uh, but don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Why? The Holy Spirit is Yahweh's act, acting agent. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh himself as he extends himself to do things. You're actually blaspheming Yahweh. You do that, goodbye. That's the end. 
If you know, you know, if you know what you're doing. I know, I remember one brother, he, uh, he worked over at the old McDonnell Douglas in St. Louis, and uh, he was in the lunch line. And guys were asking him about it, I guess probably because he came out for the feast and wanted to know about his faith. And he said, oh, yeah, I worship Yahweh. And some guy behind him starts to make fun of it. He says, hey, tell you what, the Bible says you don't blaspheme his name and get away with it. And that's the last time that guy ever did that. But you don't blaspheme Yahweh. You don't ever do that uh, and turn away from him. And really, that's, that's the next part. Completely reject it after you've accepted it, got baptized, and then turn away. Once you do that and say, I want no more part of it, I believe Hebrews 6 says there's no more sacrifice for sin. That's it. So we want to be careful. We never do anything like that. And think about that. It's, uh, it's very serious. But here we are then, the last day of this Moedim. Actually, two feasts in one. We get double the joy. But we never want to find ourselves, once we accept this truth, turning away from it. And Yahweh will give us blessings if we don't, and if we teach our children, our family, relatives. Uh, they may not understand it, but they'll think about it. And everybody's on their own schedule. You know, Some people accept it right away. I'm sometimes, I'm sometimes a little bit concerned when someone accepts it too fast. You, know, you wonder if it's really sunk in. It's like the rain you know, going running off without seeking, sinking deep into the soil. And sometimes I worry about that. Others, they take forever, and I worry about that too. You know, when are you going to come to the knowledge of the truth? It's right there. You hear it. You know it. But you never do anything about it. That's why we're at Tabernacles, to do something about it, to come out and live, as he says we're supposed to, to live in temporary dwellings that aren't our normal dwelling. And uh, I don't know, anybody see the sukkah downstairs? I bet some of you haven't even seen it. The kids built a sukkah down there at the, near the office down there in the back. And uh, kids were learning about it and built one. And that's what Tabernacles is. Uh, that's one of the definitions. It's a sukkah, a temporary dwelling, a tent, a uh, place to dwell in. And that's what Israel would do. They'd dwell in tents, and we're supposed to be mindful of that and realize that this earth is just temporary. We're not here to make it our home. It's only temporary. So at this time, if you'd all rise, at the end of each feast, we always have the Aaronic benediction, number six. Number 623, Yahweh, or I'm sorry, Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and his sons, saying, On this wise you shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them been wonderful having you. We'll have many memories of this feast. Hallelujah.